from the creators of the hit kids podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix Brainchild, comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories, affectionately known as math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who've just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs, making learning cool. It's perfect for ages six and up, and new episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. Episodes are about 15 minutes, the perfect length for car rides, meal times, break times, and bedtime. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, and they work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time-traveling adventures. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's Ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. The goal of math is to weave humor and education together so that kids won't even realize they're learning. We loved Who Smarted? So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids, and you can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. It's sure to please your family as much as it's pleased ours. Maybe you've read the book or you listen to the podcast or you have a really good understanding of what you need to do, and then how do you keep not doing it? Which, by the way, is what human beings do all the time. There are certain things that keep coming up over and over again. So it's almost like you get stuck in the habits that are hardest to break. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and other big feelings. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a fluster clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way, and I'll even tell you what to say. Hey, Lynn, in one of our recent episodes, you said the phrase, for when you're feeling kind of stuck, trying to figure out how to get things going. And that just made me wonder, there are probably a lot of common ways that parents get stuck, recognizing they have anxiety in the family and wanting to start managing it. What have you seen? Yeah, that's such a good way to put it, because if people didn't get stuck, that I could see everybody for one or two sessions, and then they would be fine. Even after you get the concepts, even after you intellectually understand what the process is or what you need to do and what you don't need to do, you get stuck in these traps that keep you in that place. So lots of times I'll be talking to families, I'll sort of raise my eyebrows and be like, ah, and they're like, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. I can say as the co-host of this show, and my husband even helps in the background as an editor of the show, we're clearly in the content of this. Mm -hmm. We still have these habits. Just because you have the information doesn't mean that you don't have to consciously avoid the behaviors all the time. Right. Think of anything you want to change. So if somebody says it's really better for your back if you sit up straight and drop your shoulders. Are you saying that because you're looking at me through the camera and you're seeing me slouch? Yeah, you were okay. slouching. Yeah, I'm sitting up straight. <laughs> okay, I, I was slouching too. Of course, like we know that. There are so many things we know that we should do and we continue to not do them. So it's a perfectly normal human being thing to do. But let me talk about some of the ways in which it comes up over and over again for families that are trying to address their worry and their anxiety. All right. So the first one that we should talk about is inconsistency. Now, this is just not the bane of dealing with anxious families. This is, <laughs> this is the bane of parenting, right? It is hard to be consistent 
Remember when I'm talking about consistency and inconsistency, I'm not talking about this rigidity where you never change anything, where you don't adjust at all. But when we're dealing with worry and anxiety, the place where the inconsistency shows up is that when your child begins to fall apart or when they push back, it certainly happens at bedtime a lot with anxious kids. That's where you really need to stick with the plan. And that's when it's really hard to stick with the plan. So you're talking about an inconsistency of a parent's reactions or language. Mm -hmm. They know what they're supposed to do in terms of talking about worry or talking about emotions, and then they don't at bedtime and they allow anxiety to sort of take over. Yeah. Here might be an example. So I was talking to a parent the other day and their daughter gets very, very worried about physical things that might be wrong with them. And it could be anything. Like she could have a particularly hard booger in her nose, which is actually what the issue was recently. She had a bigger booger in her nose than usual. And so she'll get really worked up about it. It could be that she's noticed a new freckle on her hand. It could be that she thinks that she's having a twitch in her eye. And I've worked with these parents over and over and over again to say, you need to consistently say, that's your worry. We know that this is what your worry says. This is how your worry operates. And it's really hard for them after they say that. And then the daughter says like, no, it's not. You're not listening to me and you don't love me. And what if this is really cancer in my nose and not a booger and whatever? And then they will say like, okay, let me just look in your nose and I'll confirm to you that it's a booger or the eye twitching. She'll say, my eye has been twitching. And they'll say, well, let's look up eye twitching and I will prove to you that that's a normal thing to happen. Even though they know consistently that they should have the response, which says, this is your worry. We know it's going to cause you distress. Your worry always says the same thing. It's easy for them to start doing that reassurance thing. And the reason they're doing that is because they just want her to go to bed or stop talking about it. But if the parent isn't being consistent about the message, this is your worry and it's trying to make you uncomfortable and latch on to a variety of different things. If the parent's not consistent with that message, then how's the child going to learn that awareness? Correct. And remember, worry always wants to pull you back into reassurance. It wants you to change something. It wants you to make accommodations. And so the consistency is being able to just stay with the party line, which is really tricky because there's a part of you inside that's just like, if I just told her this, then we could move on from here. I mean, I had a family recently where the daughter was really afraid of Santa Claus coming into the house. Remember a long time ago, early on, I think in our first season, we did an episode on kids being afraid of Santa because it's kind of creepy, right? So the parents, you have this anxious child that's afraid of Santa. Instead of saying like, we know this is your worry and this is what your worry does, et cetera, et cetera. They came up with this whole elaborate plan to make Santa show up at about 7.30 p.m. so that everybody could go to sleep by eight. I mean, they get total points for like the execution of this very elaborate plan, but it sort of defeated the purpose of saying, this is what your worry does. This is how worry shows up. Your worry tells you that this is an emergency. I've also had parents that have said, trying to get their child to go to sleep when they're anxious or try to get them to go to school. They said, well, we tried what you said. We did what you said. And after about a half an hour, we realized it wasn't going to work. So then we just went back to our old plan. So we'll try it again next time. 
Or I even had a, a parent once say to me, well, she was upset for an hour and a half, and I figured that was long enough for her to be upset. So then I gave in and we'll try it again next time. And I said to them, so you have just shown her that if she can hang in there for an hour and a half, she will get what she needs. Her anxiety will get what she needs. So it's really hard to not give in, but that inconsistency, and it may be inconsistency in blowing up. It may be inconsistency in reassuring. It may be inconsistency in giving in. It may be inconsistency between two parents. So one parent does one thing, one parent does another thing. You've got to toe the line in a loving, caring, supportive way to be empathic. I know this is really hard. This is hard for you. It's hard for me, but we're not going to let worry be in charge of our family. That's where the consistency has to happen. We have to be consistent without falling to the trap of reassuring. We actually did a whole episode on reassurance mm-hmm. that we'll put a link in the show notes because if you realize as a listener that this is a pattern that you easily fall into because it's how you've managed anxiety in the past, how's it working for you? Probably not too well, but it's short-term fix, long-term problem. That's right. And just in general, you know, so consistency, like if you say to your child, we're going to do this or we're not going to do this, or this is going to be a consequence of this or this, when you start not following through with those consequences, then your credibility just is shot, right? You don't have any credibility. So if you say to your child, I need you to do this, and when you're finished with this, then you can get your phone back or then I'll turn the Wi-Fi back on and you don't follow through. They know you don't follow through. You know, it's the old idle threat problem with parenting. But if you're trying to get your child to do something, like I've got a child now, it's, he's not a child actually, he's a college student, but he's home from college because it didn't work out so great. And the parents are trying to figure out how do they get him to even just do some chores around the house. So they go off to work and they say, we're going to turn the Wi-Fi off and then I need you to do these three things. And then let us know, and then you can get the Wi-Fi back on. The reason they're doing this is this kid isn't getting out of bed. This kid is really being very, very disconnected and very, very disengaged in therapy, working on it, trying to figure it out. But we've got to activate this kid. But what will happen is the son will get angry that the dad turned off the Wi-Fi, start texting the mom at work over and over and over again. And then the mom finally is like, oh, I can't tolerate him. He's bugging me so much. He's blowing up my phone. So then she'll text the husband and say, forget it. Just turn the Wi-Fi back on. And then they'll say to me, oh, we're not making any progress because he just knows what he needs to do in order to outmaneuver them in terms of the consequences. It sounds very hard, but I get it. It's really hard. Yeah. Mom just needs to turn off her phone. This is an example where the mom's anxiety is getting in the way. Mom needs to just silence her phone so that she doesn't hear all his texts coming in because he texts her and she's just hearing ding, 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 ding. And she's really getting more and more anxious and more and more worried about him. So she is having a hard time with her own anxiety and her own worry about him. Understandably, this kid is struggling, but it's that consistency that needs to happen. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. 
And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your liquid IV, hydration multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. You know, sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and feel grounded in your personal relationships. So getting started is the important part. Talkspace makes it easy and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home, your car, your office. There's no need to commute to appointments and miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. That's right. And it's secure and private. They use the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Remember, Talkspace is affordable and it's in-network with most major insurers. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. So what else do you see that gets parents stuck? Pretty closely related to what I was just talking about is their own anxiety. Sometimes parents will say, I realize this is my own anxiety. This is my own worry. This is what's getting in the way. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they deny it. It's funny with OCD stuff. A lot of times there's a lot of denial for whatever reason. I don't know why it is, but it happens. I'll be trying to work on interrupting the compulsions or not doing the OCD. And the parent has a lot of their own similar compulsions, similar things. And they'll say, well, my OCD isn't impacting my kid, or you know what, it's different, or I'm just keeping things in order, or this isn't causing me distress, so it's not really OCD. This denial that you have your anxiety and that you're showing it to your kids, or it's your denial of your own anxiety impacting your ability to do what I need you to do. And that's really hard. So being able to own it, being able to talk about it, I think I've probably talked about in the past this thing called 
parental experiential avoidance, which is just this fancy research term that means that you have a great difficulty tolerating your own distress and tolerating the distress in your children. And so you step in very quickly in order to relieve your own distress, your own anxiety. And that really gets in the way of moving through this also. I think a way for some parents who still get trapped into thinking that anxiety is nervousness or fretting in this exaggerated way. Let's try this phrase, outcome management. How does that resonate? Because no, you're not nervous and you're not fretting, but you are putting a ton of energy into all of the outcomes in your home, in your job, Mm -hmm. your children's futures, your children's grades. Outcome management, I think, is an interesting way to talk about this because man, this is like our job as a parent. And so it's, mm-hmm. it takes a lot of skill to separate our desire to control outcomes. And I think we've talked about this too, that if you're someone who's capable of controlling outcomes, you're going to be really rewarded for that in your job. Well, you're rewarded for it in your parenting too, right? Because if you can get your kid to do the thing that your kid needs to do, yeah, so outcome management is such, and you said the word control. So that's another one of the traps is that how do we step back and recognize that our desire to control outcomes, I love that, to control outcomes is really a way that you're not going to allow your child to learn how to manage their worry and their anxiety. It has to do with your own need for things to go a certain way. Remember, anxiety is about certainty and control. It has a fair amount of rigidity to it. And so, yeah, so you step in outcome management. You're not going to let your child be upset. You're also not going to let your child hand in homework that they got mad about and crumpled up and threw on the floor. You're not going to let your child go to school with mismatching socks. You're not going to let your child miss a deadline for an important paper or a project or something. You're not going to let your child show up late to a baseball practice. Those are all the things where you step in to try and control the outcome of something And it doesn't let your child have practice managing both their worry about the circumstance and just a lot of other things, managing their time, managing their anger, managing disappointment. Yep. Managing the old, I don't feel like doing it, so I'm not going to do it. Well, how's that going to work for you? I just think that this whole idea where we're trying to control the outcomes of everything is intertwined with this mainstream idea of what good parenting looks like. I mean, it's really, it's just this parenting competition. I'm surprised there hasn't been some sort of reality show, like, you know, like the Big Brother house and this and that. I feel like there should be some reality show of like the parents who are best at controlling the outcome. Like there should be some college admission survivor where they're all on an island and who can get their child into the best university, right? I mean, that would be pretty funny. They do those often with documentaries about the kids because they've made it into the sports team. Mm -hmm. There's several of those, that amazing Colin Kaepernick series on Netflix. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like finally getting that call from a coach. Yeah. Dance moms. Right. Let's do the college version of dance moms. (laughs) (laughs) That's a hard one to get out of because we're so judgy and we want so much for our kids. I'm involved in this documentary, which I can't say too much about right now, but I was just watching the rough cut last night. And after I stopped obsessing about how wrinkled I looked, 
I, I'm just coming clean with you people. It was in HD. They did my makeup and I was like, what do I? Oh, my God. <laughs> the people that are in this documentary are so open and honest. And there are some really great interviews with kids and with parents about this dynamic and how hard it is to let go, how hard it is to step back and not control the outcome. Yeah, very, very common. All right. So here's another tough one. This is good because all of these traps that parents step into, I think we can all relate to them because they're so hard. They're just so hard to stay out of. And they're all kind of related too. They all sort of overlap. But this one is when you see yourself as a very loving parent. You see yourself as a really caring, supportive parent. And that loving and caring moves over into a place that's kind of toxic. That's a hard one. That is a hard one. And I bet every parent, every parent has done all of these. Mm -hmm. I've done all of them. I sure have. Yeah. And I mean that in that way that you step in and you want to make sure that everything goes well for your child, that you want to be supportive, that you want to make sure that they have everything they can possibly have. This also is a real issue and a real struggle for parents that really grew up with not having that environment. So I would say that oftentimes when I'm working with parents that fall into this category, where they are just absolutely terrified of not being a loving parent, of giving so much to their child, it's often because they had a pretty crappy childhood, that they had a parent that didn't offer them what they needed. I have parents that if you heard the stories of their childhood, horrible, horrible things, and so they want to make sure that they're being different. So one of the vows they made to themselves when they decided to be a parent, because that's a scary thing to step into if you had a really traumatic, abusive childhood, to step into being a parent, the promise they made themselves is that I will be different. So they go to the other extreme because it's the opposite of what they experienced. They're trying to give their child what they fantasized and wished for. They're trying to fill that big, empty place inside of them. And so they do everything possible to make sure that their child is loved and cared for. But because of their experience, they don't have a way of saying, you know, one of the best things we can do or one of the most loving things we can do is to allow our child to feel distress, allow our child to fail, allow our child to make mistakes. And then we are there to support them through that. That's not the experience they had. So it becomes really, really hard for them to back up at all. If as a parent, you think of your own childhood and your own family of origin, and you had either literally absent parents or emotionally absent parents, mm -hmm. it's really easy to then want to be emotionally enmeshed with your kids. Yeah. If we talk about the difference between being emotionally available and emotionally enmeshed, right? That's an important distinction to make because emotionally available means that when your child needs something from you, you are there. And that if they are having a tough time, you don't jump in to solve every problem, but you're there to support them in a way that says, I get it. I empathize. Of course, you're feeling frustrated. Is there anything I can do to help? That's emotionally available. Emotionally enmeshed is my feelings and your feelings are virtually indistinguishable. 
So if you're having a tough time, I'm having a tougher time. If you get rejected by a friend or if somebody breaks your heart or if a teacher doesn't like the work that you did, that is a direct injury to me because my emotions and my reactions are tied up in yours and I can't tell the difference. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests, too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. One of my friends just said that expression that you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. So there's that mainstream culture idea Mm -hmm. promoting that enmeshment, right? I mean, we all get that, right? Like if you have a child that's struggling, we all can totally relate to that. Right. So we have a child that's struggling and we're really emotionally impacted by it. Mm -hmm. But what are you saying is the goal? So the goal is to be able to say to yourself, what can I do to help my child? What do I have to do to support my child? How can I be cheering and loving and caring and supportive for my child compared to I'm going to fall apart and then actually become less capable and less able to support because I am as devastated, if not more so, than they are. The advice you always mentioned early on that I attached to was that the parenting mantra should be, this is not about me. This is not about me. This is not about me. But it's also really talking about the emotional management skills needed Mm -hmm. for good parenting. Yeah. Because it's managing those reactions. Right. And then being able to put on the objective hat that you just articulated. Right. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to feel these things. I'll give you an example. My friend who works at a college, she told me that there is a student who has food allergies and the mom drives her meals to her every day. 
So that mom is so terrified of her child not getting the right food or whatever. So the mom, she doesn't trust the daughter to make good decisions. This is a college age person. If you sent your child off to college and she had severe food allergies, would you be concerned about that? Sure. If you send your child off to college or you send your child off to camp or whatever, you're going to be worried about that. But this mom clearly sounds like she's far more worried than the daughter about it because the daughter's like, oh, God, here goes my mother again with my lunch. Never gave the daughter the opportunity to figure it out for herself because the mother's feelings and emotions about it are even bigger than the daughter's. It would be the same like, say your child tried out for a play and they really wanted to get a big part, but they got put into the ensemble. And you are so devastated. You are so worried that your child's not going to be able to handle it that you go to the theater director, you make a big stink, your daughter comes home, and instead of seeing how your daughter feels about it, you're just like, I can't believe this happened. This is so awful. How are you handling this? That's when we see that your emotions become the primary driver of what the reaction is going to be. When I hear like a 13 or a 12-year-old or an 11-year-old kid say that their parent is their best friend, Or when I hear a parent say about their tweener, she's my best friend, I go like, I get a little like, oh boy, right? Because that's sort of like too much of an investment, too much of an enmeshment. There needs to be a separation. Well, when you say that, here's what I think about too. I think about the pandemic and I think about the tweeners being at home and having their social lives and activities being really disrupted where there are probably more patterns of that that are going to come out as a result of the pandemic than there would have before. Mm -hmm. My family of four, we've been together a long time. I mean, they're going to school, but, you know, we're only just now sort of socializing more normally this year. Mm -hmm. What do you do to create that separation? Yeah, it's a good question. I was in a school last week and the teachers were talking to me a lot about how kids are behind in things. And how a lot of them are not really sure at how to do school at this point, the little ones in particular. So this is something you just want to talk about with your kids very openly and say, so we had these few years of really not being able to branch out. Remember you and I were talking about the pandemic was like being on Gilligan's Island, right? Because you guys are having like a fancy dress party. I was like, oh, it's like Gilligan's Island. Remember they used to dress up and have contests and things. And here's the thing I think you need to pay attention to as a parent it probably felt kind of good. Like if you had a tweener or a teen during that period of time, it felt good that they didn't have the opportunity or the space to reject you because you were kind of the only port in this storm. So it may have felt good. So you've got to make a conscious effort to turn them around and sort of point their gaze out toward the horizon instead of having it point directly to you. One of the things that I have noticed, and this is happening particularly with anxious families, is that there are some families who really haven't started socializing or letting their kids move out into the world at all. That's something that I think is going to be an issue. I've talked to schools where the schools are back in session and they've got good vaccination rates, et cetera, et cetera, and parents are still keeping their kids completely isolated. That's going to be a problem. But if you went through this in the way that all of us went through this, recognize it felt good to have that connection, but you're going to have to make some effort and you're going to have to show them and teach them maybe a little bit more about the connection away from you than you normally would have had to do. 
Yeah, this is interesting. When I think of some other kids I know who are now college age, I can remember a time when they were maybe in high school where they didn't have a big social community yet, but they had a good relationship with the parents. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine as a parent, this is a tightrope because everyone needs a certain amount of authentic connection, ideally every day. Mm -hmm. So the parent can fill that role if there aren't those things, but you have to simultaneously encourage the opportunities for them to be external communication outside the family too. How do you balance all of that? Well, you do the best you can and there's no, it's not completely in balance. I think the way you want to think about it is make sure that you're not blind to your blind spots. As you're thinking about what your child needs, make sure that you keep in mind that there are things, there are skills, there are opportunities, there are connections that you want to promote as things open up that maybe feel a little tricky or maybe feel a little bit difficult. It sort of goes back to this idea between differentiating between being enmeshed versus being connected. So if we're talking about enmeshment, if your child will only do things with you, if your child only wants to hang out with you, if your child only will go places if you're going with them, then that's going to be a problem. You want to have connection with your kids, but you want to make sure that you are fostering all areas of their life, even the ones that are separate from you. And that's what was tricky during the pandemic. That's why when people were talking about screens and things, they were saying, okay, so I'm going to let my child be on a screen as long as they're connecting with other people versus let them be on a screen all the time so that they can play games and that kind of stuff. It's almost like you're thinking about all the different compartments of your child's life. Make sure that you and your connection isn't the biggest compartment. It should be a compartment, but not the biggest and not the only compartment. Where else do you want to have them connect? And it may even be to other adults. Are there other relatives in your family that are adults? Do they have connections to a coach or a teacher or somebody else in their life that is meaningful for them? You just want to make sure that you're not the biggest container of connection. I have parents that want to come see me and they want to bring their parents to the session every time. They're adults, they're married, they have kids, and they want their parents to be sitting in on the session. You mean like the grandparents? Yes, ma'am. Every once in a while, it's helpful. If that grandparent is living in the house and is a really important part, I can have grandparents into a session and they can offer me an enormous amount of helpful information, sometimes not in the way they think they're offering the information. I can pull a lot of what a grandparent is saying about the family dynamic and stuff. So it's not like I don't want grandparents in the session. But if you're coming to your therapy every time and you're a grown person and you're bringing your parent with you, that's interesting. I'll put a stop to it. Hmm. I learned a lot of different things from you. <laughs> I've had families where the adult who, again, is like functioning pretty well, doing a job and not even living with the parent, but there's a long, long history of separation anxiety that probably started when the child was four. And the contact has to be constant. And that even means that the parent will come to the therapy session and sit in the waiting room. Interesting. Yeah. But again, I'll put a stop to that. That is grist for the therapeutic mill, I'll tell you. And I help them understand it. Lynn, we're going to wrap up this week's episode. But for next week, what do you think is the fourth and biggest trap? I would probably have to say, and you know, I always am talking about content versus process. I would have to say when parents and families get stuck in this trap of thinking that their situation with anxiety is unique or different 
because of the circumstances. I'm looking forward to hearing your comments on that because I think it's actually going to be answering so many different listener questions that we get Mm -hmm. for all the different obstacles and struggles parents have when they're trying to raise their kids. When you look at the questions that we get, the listener questions and even questions when I'm doing presentations and things, people will listen to what I have to say and then they're like, yeah, but my situation is different or yeah, but what about this? People want it to be different or unique. Sometimes they just need to hear again and again and again, this thing is predictable, it's redundant, it's persistent. So we'll talk about that next time. Hey, do you know what else is kind of redundant and persistent? What? Me. Telling everyone (laughs) that our teen retreat registration is live (laughs) now. (laughs) Yeah, everyone. Robin is also... Yeah. She's predictable and redundant and she is persistent. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I take pride in my persistence. I'll tell you that. It is a lifesaver. I'll tell you. Yeah. So we've got this teen retreat. So we'll just remind you again in a very predictable, redundant and loving way that our teen retreat is happening April 9th. So check it out. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.